Grace and peace to you in the name of Jesus, the rock of our salvation. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, our first reading relates in abbreviated fashion the story of Stephen, or Stephen as most of you pronounce his name. It's a quirk of our English language that morphs the PH into a V in only the male version of the name and not the feminine Stephanie. It is a wonderful name though. It means wealth or crown in the Greek. In almost 13 years here at Redeemer, this is the first time I have ever elected to preach on this text, which is a little odd as the story of Stephen appears every year on his feast day as well as here in series A. Well, perhaps not so odd as the feast for one of first Christian martyrs comes on the 26th of December, not exactly a Christmas theme, the stoning of the saints. The holy innocents, the slain boys of Bethlehem, followed two days later on the 28th. But turning our attention to Acts chapter 6, however, we hear the context for Stephen's selection for ministry, controversy within the early church. Quote, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Close quote. It is reminiscent of Israel's grumbling in the wilderness, which uses a verbal form of our word complaint. But like Moses, we see the apostles stepping up and immediately addressing the question. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. There is an important lesson for us here. Conflict within the congregation will happen. We are all sinners. And just like the apostles, when it happens, we must not ignore it or sweep it under the rug. Instead, take it to the Lord in prayer. Seek His solution. The solution in Jerusalem was to find seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom. Stephen stands at the head of the list with the further qualifications of being a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. The setting concludes with a summary statement about the word of God increasing in the conversion of many of the priests. And the story of Stephen begins properly with verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Grace and power are major theological categories as witnessed by our Book of Concord. From the Augsburg Confession, Article 4 on Justification, it is also taught among us that we cannot obtain forgiveness of sin and righteousness before God on our own merits, works, or satisfactions, but that we receive forgiveness of sins and become righteous for God by grace. For Christ's sake, through faith. Close quote. Grace is the gift, the benefit to us of Jesus' death and resurrection. Grace declares you are redeemed. In the Solid Declaration, the Reformers cast cite our text as a negative example of power, of power refused. From Article 2 on free will, it is true that God does not coerce anyone to piety. For those he who always resist the Holy Spirit and oppose and constantly rebel against acknowledged truth, as Stephen describes of the obstinate Jews in Acts 7, will not be converted. Close quote. On the other hand, the epitome describes the positive side of God's power. Quote, in conversion, God changes recalcitrant, unwilling people into willing people through the drawing power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit through water and word declaring, you are mine. When Luke writes that Stephen was a man full of grace and power, he includes these categories, but goes even further. 
Lenski suggests that this grace was the special favor of God that was connected to the power bestowed on him at this time as something exceptional and not granted to the other deacons, the ability to perform miracles. Luke may have had an additional reason for noting these characteristics of Stephen. They figure prominently in his defense, which is the largest portion of chapter 7. Our lectionary steps over the bulk of Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin jumping from verse 2a to verse 51. It is lengthy, and I don't propose to read all of it to you, but how we tell the stories of faith matters. He begins with Abraham, which is no surprise. But in the story of Abraham, he focuses on Egypt. The council, we need to be reminded that in the middle of that mysterious covenant signing ceremony in Genesis 15, we hear these words of Yahweh. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Close quote. Why? that God's power might be known. Stephen steps quickly through Isaac and Jacob to get to Joseph. And we read, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him, and rescued him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor, our word grace, favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. What was the favor, the grace given to Joseph? He was a dreamer of dreams, and more importantly, the interpreter of dreams. This was the gift through which God made him second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. You know the story, as Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams of seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. Jacob sends the brothers to buy grain in Egypt, not knowing from whose hand it comes. It is a story of cunning and regret, pricked consciences and recrimination, but in the end of reconciliation and redemption. Jacob is reunited with his son Joseph, who was to him dead. As Stephen tells the story, Joseph becomes a type of Christ. He rescues his family from a certain death by famine by opening the granaries of Egypt and welcoming their flocks into the land of Goshen. How was it possible? By grace and power. Grace, the spiritual gift God gave to him, whereby he secured the power necessary for his work of redemption. As Stephen begins his transition to his second major example, Moses, we hear Jesus foreshadowed in verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, the time of deliverance promised to Abraham, certainly, but a spirit-empowered ear hears more. It hears the fullness of time, as Paul writes to the Galatians, when God sent his Son, Moses is also a man of special gifts, according to Stephen. Verse 22, he was instructed in all the wisdom of Egypt, and he was mighty, our word power, mighty in words and deeds. Power, yes, but grace? But well, how else can we describe the divine dialogue at the burning bush? Moses talked with God, not only there on the backside of Horeb, but throughout the wilderness wanderings, Exodus chapter 33, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Joseph rose to be second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. Moses, or better yet, God through Moses, defeated Pharaoh. 
First, the standoff during the plagues, and then the Passover, as Pharaoh's own firstborn dies, and he expels the children of Israel. But still Pharaoh did not know the Lord, and he summoned his chariots, 600 chosen chariots, and all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them, we read. He chased Israel to the Red Sea, where God demonstrated his power as the walls of the sea that allowed Israel through collapsed on Pharaoh's chariots, mired in the mud. From the Red Sea to the verge of the Jordan, for 40 years, Moses was a man of grace and power before Yahweh and his people. He was also, like Joseph, a type of Christ, rescuing God's people from slavery. Moses from the slavery of bricks and human taskmasters, Christ from the slavery of sin. Stephen makes the turn to Jesus explicit in verse 37. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He is the one speaking from the burning bush. He is the one who will intercede for us. He is the mediator of a new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. Grace and power are theological categories. They're characteristics of God's servants, Stephen and Joseph and Moses. There are also attributes of Jesus, only divinely shifted and magnified. Grace is shifted, because as we noted, grace is a gift, a benefit, a favor given, but all of these things were his from creation. Indeed, all things were made through him, and without him not, was not anything made that was made, as John declares in his prologue. Instead, Jesus is the gift. He became grace incarnate at the, his conception in Mary's womb. Grace made manifest at his birth in Bethlehem. Grace announced by angels and worshipped by shepherds. Then grace incarnate became grace accomplished as he lived a perfect life of obedience at God's will and laid down his life for the ungracious, for sinners, for you and for me. But the tomb could not hold him. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Grace. God's grace revealed from the tomb and announced to all who believe and are baptized, you are redeemed. Grace is shifted in Christ, but power is magnified. Luke tells us that Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Jesus did more, many more, and greater, raising Lazarus from the dead. A young man of name, Jairus' daughter, to name only the most spectacular. John closes his gospel account noting that, quote, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It is this Jesus, this all-powerful grace incarnate, that becomes the focus of the closing of our text. Throughout his defense, Stephen has highlighted other servants of the Lord who pointed forward to Christ. Stephen, a man of power and grace, points up. Up to the heavens, they open to reveal the glory of God and Jesus standing. Several of the church fathers make special note of this tale, detail. Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Beattie suggests that Jesus stood so that, quote, the innocent man being stoned might not stumble to the ground. Ambrose thought that Jesus stood as helpmate. He stood as if anxious to help Stephen, this athlete, in the struggle. 
He stood as though ready to crown his martyr. Jesus stood as Stephen committed his spirit to him, and then he fell. Stephen fell to his knees and died as his Savior had died with the word of forgiveness on his lips. Jesus came with grace and power for our redemption. He also came that we might be people of grace and power. People of grace, that is, forgiven. To complete Ambrose's thoughts, we read, Let him then stand for you, that you may not fear him sitting, for he sits when he judges. For you and I, for all those baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection, that judgment he has already taken on himself. His cross declares, you are forgiven. And people of power, and alien power, as Paul writes to Corinth and to us, my grace, the grace of God the Father, is sufficient for you. For my power, Jesus' power, given through the Spirit, is made perfect in weakness, our weakness. You have that power in our resurrected Lord, the power to love and serve your neighbor, the power to give thanks to Jesus for his accomplished work of redemption, and to glorify God. Amen. Now that the peace which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus to life everlasting. Amen.